I'm Jack Semlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2018 Strip-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Precision versus Accuracy, Understanding the Difference for Effective Nutrient Application, is being brought to you by TopCon Agriculture. If this is your first time tuning in, you can subscribe to this series and get updates on future episodes currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if you prefer another app for listening to podcasts, let us know, and we'll look to get it added. Thanks again to TopCon Agriculture for its support of this podcast series. Agronomy matters, and TopCon Agriculture application solutions make it work. From planning to precision machine control, NORAX, boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4-hour nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit them at topconpositioning.com slash growing solutions. While many strip tillers consider precise fertilizer application a foundational element of their systems, they seek ways to more efficiently and effectively place nutrients where they are most accessible to growing plants. Variable rate nutrient application is still an emerging practice, embraced by about 40% of farmers responding to past strip-till farmer benchmark studies. But what are the secrets to overcoming adoption obstacles and bringing variable rate from a technology on the brink to a mainstream tool? As University of Kentucky Associate Professor and Soil Management Specialist Josh McGrath says, the scale at which we should manage nutrients remains much smaller than the scale at which we do manage nutrients. Generally, research indicates that scale should be about two corn plants for nitrogen management. That means switching rate every 14 inches. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast brought to you by TopCon Agriculture, Josh discusses ongoing research into variable rate technology, including creating the optimal conditions for creating fertility prescriptions for maximum plant response. Talk a little bit about precision ag, and really, I think my point tonight is to try and make you think about how you're doing precision ag and what precision ag is what we know and what we don't know. Uh, I've been in Kentucky now for four years and uh, I moved there from the University of Maryland four years ago. I spent eight years at the University of Maryland, did a fair amount of research and extension on precision ag there, but a lot of it was related to the Chesapeake Bay and water quality. And I moved over to Kentucky so that I could kind of adjust fire and get more at it from a production standpoint where I didn't have to meet those demands of the water quality. But, you know, we'll have some time for some questions and, and we can talk about it either way. But I really think that Precision Ag has a lot of promise, but I would say that it's a lot of unfulfilled promise at this point, to be quite frank. So we'll start off talking about four R's. As a soil fertility guy, you've got to start, you've always got to mention the four R's, right? The right rate, and the right time, and the right place from the right source. And so that's the four R approach to nutrient management that the, uh, you know, really came out of the fertilizer industry. But when we talk about the four R's, one thing that we often don't talk about is that performance objective. But there are multiple rights. If we're talking about nitrogen rate, there's multiple right rates. It depends on what that performance objective is, and we often forget about that. Is it maximum economic return? Is it maximizing your yield? Is it minimizing off-site environmental impact? There's, there's multiple objectives that we could be talking about. 
And I think there are competing performance objectives. We can't have our cake and eat it too. And so we have to be aware of this. We have to be aware that when we're managing nutrients, there's always going to be trade-offs. You know, and, and part of this is understanding that agronomically small nutrient losses can be environmentally significant. What we on the farm think is a small nutrient loss downstream can have big impact, particularly with phosphorus. And there are significant trade-offs in managing for environmental protection. The most profitable system will likely have an environmental impact. And we know that maximum yield does not equal maximum profit when we talk about nutrients. So these are kind of the ground rules I'm going to lay out that we'll get back to in this discussion of precision. Here's the problem, all right? If the right rate is different for optimizing environmental performance, optimizing profit, and optimizing yield, that's fine. Okay, well, then i got to pick my performance objective. The problem is we really don't know what the right rate is for any one of those three things at the beginning of the season, right? And we're hoping that some of these precision tools help us to get there. Here's an example of what I mean by agronomic, economic, and environmental objectives may not always be compatible. This is uh, nitrogen response data on the vertical axis. Two, two screens makes it tough because you don't know which one to point at. So on the vertical axis, you've got the yield. On the horizontal axis, you've got nitrogen rate. That's kind of a standard nitrogen response curve. So that right there might be our agronomically optimum nitrogen rate that maximizes yield. Or maybe it's the one that maximizes uh, economic return. That, for this study, this is some data from Maryland, is the nitrate in the top meter post-harvest. So this is nitrogen on those coastal plain soils that is potentially lost to groundwater over groundwater recharge in the winter if we don't have cover crops, right? That post-harvest soil nitrate in the top meter. So right there is economic optimum yield, 173 bushels. Economic optimum nitrogen rate, 205 pounds of nitrogen per acre. The max yield occurred one bushel higher, but 25 pounds more nitrogen. Took 25 more pounds to get that max yield. So this is agronomic versus economic. Just one bushel difference, 25 pounds more nitrogen in this one study, right? So we can, in this response trial, we can kind of parse that out pretty fine. In just that difference, that 25 pounds of nitrogen to get that one more bushel with 17 more pounds per acre of nitrate in the top meter. That's pretty significant environmentally, but we're plus or minus a couple dollars on the economic optimum, right? So if we switch, if we are plus or minus a dollar, we're having huge differences in our environmental impact because when we're farming on the razor's edge of economic or yield performance, we're also on that point in that nitrate curve where it's getting ready to take off exponentially. So this is my argument for why precision matters. Being able to precisely predict what the right rate is at the right time in the right place. So this is, this is a little graphic that shows precision versus accuracy. A lot of folks always say, I wish that our nutrient recommendations were more accurate. Our nutrient recommendations are actually pretty accurate. Depending on the system, over 10 years and 100 different fields, if you average all the recommendations, and if you actually knew what the right rate was, they'd probably be pretty close, plus or minus 20 pounds of nitrogen, 50 pounds of nitrogen, something like that. Pretty accurate on average. Every year in every field, they're wrong. That's imprecision, right? So low precision, high accuracy is what we got. And so sometimes I question whether we want to give up a little bit of that accuracy that we have in our recommendation systems for increased precision, okay? So here's a question. What scale should we operate at? 
Some of the early precision ag research out at Oklahoma State, Soli et al. in 1999 asked two fundamental questions about precision ag that we often forget about. What scale should we be managing nutrients at? And what is the cost if we don't go down to that scale? So these aren't new questions. We've been asking them for 20 years, but we still don't have answers. And this is what I'm hoping to kind of convey to you this evening. Martin et al. in 2005 determined that yield affecting factors should be treated at scales less than one half meter. That's the precision they figured out we need to be operating at, right? One and a half foot. Nielsen, Bob Nielsen over at Purdue in 2001, he found that every inch increase in the standard deviation of plant to plant spacing resulted in a two and a half bushel yield loss. And the average standard deviation in plant to plant spacing, this is corn, was 6.8 inches resulting in a 17 bushel per acre yield loss. So this is the cost of imprecision in planting. It's the same with nutrients. There's some other research that showed with nitrogen, we should be managing nitrogen on a two plant basis, applying a nitrogen rate, changing rate every two plants in corn. So what do we need and what do we have for, for VR? 40 to 70%, depending on which survey data you look at, report that variable rate nutrient management is how we're doing it. 40 to 70% of acres in the US. But what's the agronomic basis for all those acres doing variable rate? High resolution characterization of spatially variable nutrient need. So what does that mean? That's what we need. We need a map of what my nutrient requirement. We need a prescription, right? We need to have that. We need an interpretation of the soil test results. So we need to take that soil test results now, talking about potassium or phosphorus, and we need to be able to interpret that with matching precision to that map I have of my soil test, right? And then I need recommendations to convert that soil test to a fertilizer recommendation that was developed for VR application. We can vary fertilizer at very fine resolution. I always tell the ag engineers, you know, they made these beautiful tools, these great hammers. So everything looks like a nail when you have a hammer, right? But we can't precisely map our nutrient need at the same resolution that we can apply fertilizer. And I'm going to get into that a little this evening. And we didn't develop the recommendations at that resolution. So first, soil sampling. Often when we talk about precision ag, we say, well, soil sampling is the limiting function when we're managing to the field average. You know, how, what's the quality? How many cores did I take? When we're planting variable rate, we often grid sample and then interpolate between the points. That's the most common method. So here's kind of the two methods for soil sampling. We can grid sample, and it could be grid cell or grid point. With grid cell, we're sampling that whole cell, but most people don't do that anymore. That's kind of old technology. We usually grid point sample, and that's because the software that we use to make our maps has an easy button, right? It's an, it says interpolate, and it's usually inverse distance weighting or Krieging. And so the, the folks that are converting that soil test data into a recommendation, that's the easy button. I can just Krieg that data from grid point sampling. There's also directed sampling or zone sampling, but that's actually much less common and, and more difficult to implement because of the data requirements. It requires a lot of high quality data. And one of the questions I always ask is, we're collecting a lot of data, right? Something I'm gonna get into. What's the first thing we look at when we're building a zone? Yield. But often yield maps have very little to do with actual my nutrient requirement or more importantly, the nutrient supply of the soil. But yield's easy. And maybe the problem is we're collecting all of this data, right? I'm a precision ag guy, so I'm supposed to be into big data. But I go to these meetings and often I'm left scratching my head going, we're collecting this data because it's easy and I can. But maybe the data I need to collect, I can't. I'm not sure. So what are we doing when we interpolate? 
So I've got this grid. So up there, the red and the green circles are sampled points. I just threw in some numbers. And that purple circle with the question mark is my unknown, right? The point in between my two grid points. Most grid sampling in the US occurs at two and a half acres, two acres. Some really aggressive folks are maybe grid sampling at one acre, right? And then I'm doing some math based on that figure on the left. That's a, a covariogram on the left there. And so what that shows is on the vertical axis is covariance, and on the horizontal axis, distance between two points. And what that says is the points that are further apart are less alike, and points that are close together are more alike. And this is the basis of all interpolation. When you hit the easy button and interpolate, you're saying, I'm going to let the points closest to this unknown value have a higher weight than the red points that are further away. Okay? That's interpolation. Well-established statistical method. The fact is, and this is a paper that was done by some Canadians, the R value the statistician tells you you have to have, so that's covariance on the vertical, and so that's an R value, and all you need to know here, I'm not going to, it's too late in the evening to do a statistics lesson, lesson, that R value has to be 0.3 for interpolation to work. A statistician will tell you R has to be 0.3 for interpolation to work. And across lots of fields and lots of research, in most situations, the vast majority of fields, two soil samples have to be within a quarter acre, 30 meters of each other, to get your R value up to 0.3. So if you grid soil sampled at greater than one quarter acre, you cannot interpolate that data. But the computer will do it. Easy button, right? But the interpolate soil map, if the soil samples are coarser than a quarter acre, is of no use interpolated. And so folks always say, well, what am I supposed to do? Are you recommending that I quarter acre grid sample? I recognize that that is cost prohibitive, uh, effort prohibitive, and we can't do that. Just be aware in your operation, if you're using interpolated grid sample data that was collected at coarser than a quarter acre, there's no scientific basis for it. And this is something we never talk about. When I started in precision ag, I'm not a statistician. I'm a dumb soil scientist. I didn't test high enough to be a statistician. I didn't even test high enough to be an ag engineer. Uh, you know, I was way down here. They got back the results. Soil scientists, that's what I was stuck with, right? <laughs> Quarter acre, they never told us that. In fact, if you grid sample at coarser than a quarter acre, I can almost promise you that the field average of all those samples will be closer to that true value of the unknown point. Remember the purple point? than the interpolated value. If the interpolated value says it's 10 and the field average is 15, 90% of the time it's going to be closer to the field average. So you're better off taking your two and a half acre grid sample and averaging all the numbers. You'll be closer to any one true value. Statistically, you have a higher probability of being closer by just averaging that grid data. It's disappointing, right? This is because soil properties are stochastic. So interpolation works because it's random. Stochastic means random but in a way that can be predicted. But again, they have to be a quarter acre. There's rules to that prediction, and we forgot the rules. That's the problem, we forgot the rules. So soil properties vary a lot in small distances. So we're wrong in every spot, but on average, interpolation is right on average across the field. We're wrong in every spot. Precision. We'll get back to Josh's discussion shortly, but I wanted to once again thank our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for making this podcast possible. Agronomy matters, and TopCon Agriculture application solutions make it work. 
From planning to precision machine control, NORAX boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit them at topconpositioning.com slash growing solutions. Well, Josh made an interesting comment that precision agriculture has a lot of promise, but to this point, a lot of that promise remains unfulfilled. One of the problems, he said, is that fertilizer application practices tend to be high on accuracy but low on precision. For 20 years, Josh says researchers have been trying to answer the questions of how to best scale nutrient applications and what is the cost of not doing so properly. Ultimately, he suggests that farmers should be grid sampling at a quarter acre, which he acknowledges is both cost and time prohibitive. So what's the alternative? Let's find out and get back to the program and hear more from Josh McGrath on the value of interpolating collected sampling data to come up with more precise nutrient application recommendations. Then we're going to get into interpretation of those results and recommendations. So we're good at soil analysis. I'm going to skip over the chemistry lesson. Soil sampling, we can collect soil samples. We can go out there, get the samples. We just can't interpolate them. What about interpreting those results? Let's, let's walk away from that interpolation question. So what are we doing when we interpret soil tests? A soil test is just an empirical model. So we say, okay, you're going to go out, you're going to collect the soil sample, we're going to extract the phosphorus, and then we do this work called a correlation. And we're trying to find that critical point, the point above which we don't need fertilizer and below we need fertilizer. So we do this correlation analysis of a bunch of data across a lot of sites to find the soil test value below which we need to fertilize. And then we do calibration, and all calibration is, okay, between 0 and 10, I need this much fertilizer. Between 10 and 20, I need this much fertilizer. So that's calibration. Correlation is the relative yield versus soil test value. See that curve over there? to find that critical point where plant performance will improve with increasing nutrient. And calibration is the applied, amount of applied nutrient we need. So this is standard correlation for any kind of soil test, whether it's phosphorus or potassium, of trying to find that, that critical level. And then we have these interpretive categories. But this is really what the data looks like. Look at the imprecision around those numbers. So we've got to find that critical level in that data. Where do we place that critical level when we have that much noise in response? This is an empirical model. We're going to get fancy here. When you do a correlation with an empirical model, they work really well if you have a lot of data on average, as long as you're applying that correlation within the bounds of where that data is collected. This is why we have soil test recommendations by state. But that's probably actually too big. There's a push within the soil test community now to have a big data set like they have in Australia. They do this in Australia. They got together and came up with a big data set called BFDC. And then you can look at it by actual factors that matter besides political boundaries, like soil texture and climate and these sorts of things. But if you try and apply this correlation beyond the bounds of where it was collected, it's not going to work very well. Calibration is that if we look at this little graphic here, we've got soil tests of 5 in purple, soil tests of 10 in green, soil tests 20 in red. So we go to these different fields with different soil tests P, and we figure out how much fertilizer it takes to maximize yield, right? And then there's this philosophy. So folks will tell me, well, this lab, I sent some soil to them, and they told me I need 120 pounds of phosphorus. I sent the same soil sample to this lab, and they told me I need 80 pounds of phosphorus. 
what's the difference? Likely they're using a different philosophy. Sufficiency says apply how much you need to maximize yield this year, soil test every year, and every year apply fertilizer, maybe in the furrow when I'm planting or something like that. That's sufficiency. Build and maintain says I'm going to try and rapidly build up to get to that critical level and then always apply crop removal. So that's sufficiency. Soil tests across the horizontal axis, fertilizer rate on the vertical axis. Just apply how much I need at each of these soil test levels. That's what a calibration looks like. Build and maintain, I'm always going to apply crop removal. And then I have a rapid build up really low and a gradual build up as I approach that critical level. So this is an important question if you're doing precision ag. Do you know what the philosophy is behind the recommendation system you're applying to that interpolated soil map? Which one is best in a precision situation? Personally, I think sufficiency because build and maintain ignores soil buffer capacity. What that figure on the left shows is the units of fertilizer required to move soil tests one unit. Horizontal axis is soil test, and what you can see is when your soil test is low in phosphorus, it takes a lot of fertilizer to move it just one unit. In this situation, this data it took 10 to 25 pounds of phosphate to change soil test P one unit. But once I got up above the optimum level, less than five pounds would move it one unit. So if I can't move that soil test for 20 or 30 years because I'm in low soil test P, and soil doesn't pay interest, right? Soil is not gonna pay interest. And I'm doing precision management, wouldn't it be better just to feed the crop? I'm just hypothesizing, that's, that's Josh McGrath's theory. So we focused on mapping soil P. We figured out how to go out and take two and a half acre grid samples. There may be problems with that, but, but we do it. Correlation and calibration were designed to make accurate recommendations. When these recommendations were developed in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s, we weren't doing precision ag. We weren't developing recommendations at that scale, right? So we haven't developed this interpretation at that scale. And then on top of that, what if that critical concentration below which I need fertilizer is also varying? I know the soil test P is varying across my field. My fields are very different. But what if this spot that tests 10 needs fertilizer, and this spot over here that tests 10 doesn't need fertilizer because of soil microbial communities? I've got a friend at the University of Kentucky doing some interesting research. They took a corn plant they planted it in a soil with no phosphorus, just native no phosphorus. And then in this other soil with really high soil test phosphorus. The one in no phosphorus, V6 was dead. They were getting ready to call off the experiment. They were testing the soil close to that plant's roots. And we've always known plants release chemicals out of their roots. We talk about soil health and they do this to access that phosphorus. We think through chemical means of getting that iron and aluminum to release that phosphorus. What they found is that corn plant actually was releasing organic compounds that shifted the microbes that were living on the roots, shifted the population to microbes that produce phosphatase, an enzyme that hydrolyzes organic pea. That corn plant was actually creating an environment to change the bugs so the bugs would release organic pea. I find this research fascinating, and I think we can move towards these mechanisms in soil fertility if we're gonna get more precise in our recommendations. Understand why that spot that's 10 responds and this one that's 10 doesn't respond. We've done some work on this. We're trying to do new types of research to look at this. This scatter of points here is relative biomass. So it's the biomass without phosphorus from a small plot with no phosphorus applied and a small plot with 60 pounds of phosphate applied side by side. The plot is 10 foot by 10 foot. At V6, 
we see this massive response to phosphorus. Everyone's familiar with this in yield data. So anything that falls down here in this quadrant, all those points in that lower left quadrant, responded to phosphorus. Anything to the right of the line is above the critical level, and those points, you know, there's a few points there that seem to respond. We intentionally pick two fields with really low P. So we're seeing that, you know, the soil test critical level kind of works for biomass response at V6. But this was yield response. We had a 50-50 shot of phosphorus paying off at really low soil test P. This spot in the field, the soil test P, low, responded. This spot over here, it didn't. Where's all this noise coming from? Is it just noise? Here's some nitrogen data. This is an on-farm trial that we did in Kentucky. What you've got there is you've got four different nitrogen rates. Okay, these are side dress nitrogen rates. Yield on the vertical axis, nitrogen on the horizontal axis. Statistically speaking, there was no difference except for between the highest and lowest nitrogen rate and yield. So that blue line is mean yield response to nitrogen. Statistically, this one and this one's different, but these three rates were the same yield. But this is how we traditionally have done research. These are really big plots. These were 300 foot long. We harvested them with the farmer's combine. Actually, these were much larger than 300 foot. I think these were about 600 foot long plots. Traditional way of doing research, but notice what those points did up at the top end there, the highest nitrogen rate. Statistically, there's no difference, but there's no scatter. All of a sudden, we've got precision with a high nitrogen rate. What if this isn't just random noise, but this spot really needed more nitrogen, and this spot didn't because the soil was supplying some nitrogen? because these plots are in different places in the field. This is why we fertilize at the rates we do. This is built into our recommendation. I need to apply beyond that precise economic optimum nitrogen rate, or I'm losing yield at each one of these spots that falls below that line. Because I have spatial variability and nitrogen requirement, and since we don't know the right rate, the right thing to do is to over-fertilize a little bit to make sure I group those points on the mean response curve. We haven't adapt it or adopt it to the tools that give us the right rate. I haven't talked much about nitrogen, but perhaps we can learn from nitrogen for phosphorus and potassium. 70% of the phosphorus in the United States is applied by variable rate. Interpolation doesn't work at the scale we're soil sampling. The recommendations weren't built for variable rate phosphorus. We have no science that supports our current means of applying variable rate phosphorus. There are books full of academic literature on variable rate nitrogen and how to make it work. We know how to do variable rate nitrogen and we have about Zippo on adapting or adopting that technology. So we need more psychologists in agriculture, right, to understand how we think, why we do the things we do. But we need to be more mechanistic in our approach. And people were writing about this in the literature, scientific literature, back in the 50s. We use these empirical models but we need to understand the processes. How is the corn responding to its environment? How is the environment responding to what the corn is doing? How is the weather influencing our nutrient requirement? And how is spatial variability mechanistically influencing our requirement? And until we understand these mechanisms of nutrient requirement, we're going to have a hard time getting more precise. And perhaps the best we can do is accurate ag. But in nitrogen, we use sensors. So this is some data I had from some work we did in Maryland with green seeker sensors. That red line was the farmer's standard rate, NDVI on the horizontal axis, yield on the vertical axis, predicted yield, blue line, pink line is predicted yield without nitrogen, blue line is predicted yield if I fertilize. That's how that green seeker algorithm worked. It 
you travel across the field, the sensor is sensing the crop, and every second it's making a decision. How much yield will I get if I fertilize? How much yield will I get if I don't fertilize? What's the difference? Multiply that times the concentration of nitrogen in the grain, divide by the efficiency of my fertilizer. It's a very mechanistic approach that is varying in space and responding to the crop need. Can we do something like this in phosphorus and potassium? I don't know, but I think we have to try if we're gonna get more precise. So sensors can use models and plant response to early growing conditions to adjust rates spatially and temporally. Some sensor models address yield potential and nitrogen responsiveness independently, but we need to move more towards these process-focused approaches in nutrient management. Current approaches are simple empirical models, and we can't be precise if we continue down that path. So a couple of final thoughts. Does small-scale plant-to-plant variability matter? As a researcher, I would say I don't know that I can prove it does because I actually can't measure yield at that scale. That is the biggest challenge of doing this research, and this is something I've been beating the engineers up with. If I want to look at variable phosphorus response across the field, I can't hand harvest. But I need to look at it in very small scale, and if I use a farmer's yield monitor, my plot has to be a minimum of 300 feet long because I have to get an average reading because that yield monitor is imprecise. My buddies there, engineers say, yield monitors like trying to weigh a marble as you drive across a field in a dump truck. I have a two-row plot combined with a yield monitor, and I need a 40-foot plot to get anything near a reasonable estimate when I compare it to hand sampling. So I need a decent yield monitor to figure this out, but I think that plant-to-plant variability does matter, and we have the technology to manage at that scale now with pulse width modulation, solenoids on our sprayers. I can side dress and change that rate from 10 gallons per acre to 80 gallons per acre in two seconds. So I can manage at that scale. I can have sensors, I can have models, but I don't know how exactly to do it because I can't measure it. We have to perform research at the scale where nutrient requirement varies. Soil properties, autocorrelation occurs at 0.3, 20 meters a quarter acre. So we've got to be soil sampling at less than a quarter acre if we want to interpolate. Nutrient requirement varies at less than a half meter, right? A foot and a half. Consider a small plot. So this is a normal variety trial plot, 12.2 meters by one and a half meters. Okay, so I've got a 10-foot planter. I've got 40-foot plot, something like that, 30-foot plot. The way we do that is we measure the two rows we're going to harvest. We weigh all the yield we got. If the plot length that I measure is off by six inches, the yield difference would be four bushels per acre. So when they do a variety trial, when they measure that row, and usually we just measure at the ends and then mow across, right? Have you ever seen university variety trials? If I'm off in six inches, if my mower swerves and knocks one plant off, I'm off by four bushels per acre and a 200 bushel crop. So there's noise just in the way we measure a four to six bushels. And you wonder why farmers, I talk to you guys all the time, my dad does this to me, we sit there and go, six bushel difference, it wasn't statistically significant. You guys go, six bushel matters to me, right? That's the first thing you say. But that six bushels could be because the guy with the mower swerved one plant. That error ripples through all of our recommendations from 1950 to 2018. Historically, soil testing is focused on accuracy and not precision. Perhaps we should sacrifice some accuracy to get better precision. We need to examine soil test interpretation and recommendations in the context of site-specific management. We haven't done that. We just take the old recommendations that were developed to be accurate and we shoehorn them on on an interpolated soil map. Soil test recommendations are really a model leaning towards the empirical, and as I said, that's based on correlations. Interpretation is limited to the scale of inference. 
Bias from extrapolation is, is beyond the scope of, of the calibrated data occurs. So we get this bias, this error. We need to move towards a process-oriented approach. This is data-intensive. I'm not saying it's a silver bullet or that it's magic, but these models that are process-based are moving in the right direction. They can be extrapolated beyond the calibration data if it's properly verified. But there's much larger uncertainty due to the error from that parameter. So in other words, what, what effect does the weather have? I can make a lot of mistakes in that parameter. So they are more complex and more difficult, but we're getting there with our technology. So finally, I said I wasn't going to tell you what you can do now. I'm going to try and give you a little bit of what you can do now. Interpolated soil sample maps, greater than a quarter acre grid are unreliable at best. Use the money you're spending on grid samples to sample more frequently. Temporal variation trumps spatial variation every day anyway. Sample every year and shift your grid. If you still want a grid sample, do a two and a half acre grid and every year shift it a quarter acre. And after a couple years, you'll have a more intense map that you can use. Intensively sampled grid zones might work. The best thing about grid sampling is the number of cores you're collecting. The problem is you should put them in the same bucket. But the problem is how do we find those zones and what's the quality of that, that interpretation of that zone? So the last thing I'll say is that what Precision Ag has given us is the ability to test. Right here is yield, yield response curve. I still work with some farmers in Maryland that send me their data. This was some data there where they looked at a couple fields, blue field, red field, green seeker yield with variable rate and a nitrogen response curve. We can use the technology to test the recommendations on our farm and do some adaptive management. That's what Precision Ag has given us in the interim. The question is, how, how do you interpret that on-farm research? It's difficult, it's a challenge. Thank you, Josh, for sharing your advice and expertise on improving the precision of accurate nutrient management. And again, we'd like to thank and recognize our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for helping make this strip-till farmer podcast series possible. I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. You can also keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free Striptill Strategies e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at striptillfarmr and on our Striptill Farmer Facebook page. And I'd also like to invite you to join us at the 27th Annual National No-Tillage Conference coming up January 8th through the 11th in Indianapolis. The theme of the 2019 event is Pathways to Higher No-Till Profits and will feature a mix of general sessions, classrooms, and roundtable discussions. Look for speaker announcements and conference updates at notillfarmer.com. Well, I hope that you'll join us again on September 21st for the next episode in our 2018 podcast series, and a reminder that you can still register to receive our Strip-Till Farmer print publication at striptillfarmer.com. For Josh McGrath, TopCon Agriculture, and our entire staff here at Strip-Till Farmer, I'm Jack Semlicka. Thanks for listening. <music>